Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Choking. Tom, how's it going today? Just great, Christopher. I'm very excited about today's show. And as people may or may not know, this show is about unearthing some long-lost interviews, uh, hence the name Famous Lost Words. These interviews have aired before. For the most part, they've only aired once. And so this show is about reintroducing these interview clips, the best parts of the interviews, so that you can hear them probably for the first time. Some serious scavenging work on your part, Tom, and we know that. For sure. And this week, we have a phenomenal set of interviews from the Eagles. Now, we've spoken to Glenn Fry before from the mid-80s, mid to late 80s. Uh, we featured an interview with Don Henley that I did in 2000. And this time around, we're going back to 1976 and 1979 with interview clips from the Hotel California era and uh, the Long Run era. And Christopher, you and I have a lot to say about these clips <laughs> and the men who are speaking them because they're both very, very astute and astonishingly pretentious. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> we also, I should mention, have a little uh, Hanley bonus from that 2000 interview you did as well. That's right. Tack that on the end. And what else have we got going on today, Tom? Well, Christopher, we've got a great interview from the late 60s, early 70s with the great Diana Ross. If you're a music history geek, you've got to hear these clips as she talks about the early days of the Supremes through to her time with helping out Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 during their early days. Plus, I want to talk to you about your experience working with Diana Ross when you and her collaborated on some songs. Also, if you're a Pink Floyd fan, especially a fan of The Wall, you will love this interview with Bob Ezrin, the Canadian who produced that album. His observations about The Wall and working with Roger Waters are really fascinating and also pretty surprising. But let's get started with The Eagles. Welcome to the hotel. Hotel California, a classic from the Eagles from 1976 on Famous Lost Words. Tom, this is what happens when it's no longer enough being a hugely successful and wealthy recording artist, songwriter, and performer. When you also have to be a self-appointed spokesperson with an opinion on everything. <laughs> and while you're planting your flag, make sure you claim the moral high ground, uh -huh. okay? These interviews with Henley Fry and briefly Joe Walsh of the Eagles are perfect encapsulations of the rock star of the 70s ethos. Now, these were very thoughtful guys who were extremely good at their profession and on top of the heap for quite a long run. But as we all know, one can overthink things. Do we do that here, do you think, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> Just... Just asking, you yeah, know. Yeah. Part part one of this interview takes place with the band at their absolute peak around the release of the classic Hotel California album, which went on to sell 32 million copies, wow. making it one of the biggest selling records of all time. Don and Glenn trade thoughts on how California is a symbol in the title track. California is, is an example, is a, is a microcosm for the rest of the world. We're really using a hotel as a microcosm for the rest of the world. So yeah, this is right. where the, we are. It just happens to be named Hotel California. This is a ship. It's a hotel. California simply is, is uh, a scapegoat or a martyr for the sake of example. That's all. There's just more of everything here. There's more elegance and more decadence. There's more people who care and there's more people who don't care. 
Well, we're not exploiting California lifestyle in this record by any means. It's something upon close inspection that you see uh, has, uh, you know, it's... Uh, someone once said packaging is all that heaven is. And uh, Los Angeles was always an archetypal place to me from the Midwest. Uh, watching the sunset in the West, it seemed like uh, paradise had and happiness had something to do with geography. And uh, that's something that I've learned is not true. We don't want anybody to think that it's strictly about... Beverly Hills or, or Los Angeles or, the, or even California. It's about uh, the whole country. Hotel because, Earth. Yeah, this because it's uh, California is simply an, an example that everybody holds up into the light because it's the, this is the last frontier. You know, this is the vanguard. Things happen first here. It goes from something that's appealing to something that the closer you look at it starts to, starts to look as decadent as it is elegant. You know what I mean? As pitiful as it is uh, glorious. And everything that goes on here goes on everywhere else. It's simply more visible here. It's more glamorized. And there's, let me tell you, there's as much desperation in Beverly Hills among the, the rich folk as there is over in East L.A. It's a different kind of desperation. It's a quieter desperation. Wow, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Henley says there's just as much desperation with rich folk as there is in East L.A. Okay, okay, but that's coming from a rich white guy who has really no idea what hardship is about, if I can be so bold. So he obviously means emotional desperation, but that is a little bit tone deaf when you think about what he's really saying, but I don't think he was thinking about what he was really saying in that moment. <laughs> it it kind of speaks for itself. For it me. sure does. <laughs> anyway, um, here we have thoughts on the disillusionment that followed the 1960s. It's the world unless you change yourself. In the apathetic 70s, everybody's been kind of waiting around to see who the next big thing is going to be. People seem to need heroes, you know, and we seem to be... Uh, Our answer in Hotel California is that you are the next big thing. You know, right, that you can't, go, you can't go to uh, Colorado and forget about the whole world now. You know, this is not the time for doing that. You gotta, if you don't you like know, it, the record is how you, That's right. The record yeah. is how you live your life. It's uh, that's really what it comes down to. Mm, where you draw your own personal lines and your own values. People got disillusioned in the '60s. I think their intentions were good, but they went around about it totally the wrong way. I mean, people grew their hair long and they took acid and smoked grass, and they thought it was going to change the world. You know, it was all going so well until Glenn suggested that quote the record. Is how you live your life. Oh unquote. dear, they are so. Well, it was pretentious. that, and you are. And by the way, Tom, you are the next big thing. That's right. <laughs> I am the next big thing. Who knew? But they are so pretentious. But they are also so right about a lot of what they said, which makes this yeah. so interesting because they. You can tell that they've been asked this these questions way too often. You can tell that they're digging deep into the symbolism of this masterpiece that they created, and yet. When you hear it in hindsight, boy, oh boy, it does sound deeply pretentious. Well, a discussion about what the audience wants provides Joe Walsh an opportunity to jump into the profundity pool. People are starting to listen and judge things for themselves, and I think that's the responsibility that we have, is if people are going to open their minds and listen, that we should be saying something, musically and lyrically. <laughs> At a boy, Joe. Wow. Deep end. He was in the deep end. I for sure. <laughs> for sure. Tom, in our next clip, Glenn addresses some social issues and travels a bit of a word labyrinth along the way. Don said to write the song Hotel California. Henley did. And right away, the whole, that word and that image became much bigger than just one song. And we felt like uh, 
the opening song could just be what it is, Welcome to the Hotel California. It's more or less, uh, that song is kind of a buffet. It not necessarily says anything, but it goes from something that's appealing to something that the closer you look at it starts to, starts to look as decadent as it is elegant. I have a feeling that uh, the problems of this old world are, are becoming very much one. It's like weather now. It doesn't know any nation. Poverty and natural disaster and choking to death and nuclear power plants cover this whole planet. Uh, but I think that in, in the face of world issues, like these things seem to be becoming, uh, I think we may find that uh, people do unite, you know, with, uh, with the common goal. Okay, sure. They sound very self-important there again, but you must admit that even after a thousand listens, Hotel California is lyrically very dense and symbolic. There was a lot of thought that went into that symbolism and what it meant. And in, in that regard, I think they were really successful because you can keep listening to it a thousand times and it's still the lyrics still draw you in. You know, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. We haven't had that here, spirit here since 1969. Everything about that song is so good. And musically, it's just as brilliant when you consider the last, what, three minutes of the song is just instrumental. It really is good. It's too bad in a way that they sound as, you know, pretentious or full of themselves as they do. I still love listening to it. Maybe yeah. it's the guitar solo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Tom, part two of our Eagles-O-Rama is around the time of the release of The Long Run, which proved to be their last album of original material for 28 years. Mm. Did you realize it was that long before they came out with Long Road Out of Eden? Mm. Yeah. Uh, We find our heroes dealing with the burdens of superstardom. It's not our fault that the record business got in the uh, predicament it got into, you know? I mean, they tried to blame it on us and Fleetwood Mac and lack of superstar product and all that kind of crap, but uh, I don't think that's a problem, you know, in the recession. I don't think that was the problem at all. (laughs) Okay, it's pretty funny that the record industry was really suffering and they needed bands like the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac to save them by recording another Hotel California or Rumors. Instead, they came out with The Long Run and Tusk. Both very good albums and both big sellers, but they did not sell like those previous albums and so they're considered disappointments when in any other career they would be considered massive hits and the record industry is relying on them to do something that they had never ever done they'd they'd done once before but were very unlikely to do again crazy well it's like asking michael jackson to release bad and outsell thriller it's not going to happen that's right? right that's right And it is funny because when Michael Jackson did the um, album Bad, he knew that he had sold about 40 million copies of Thriller. And so what he did is on the studio wall, on on the blackboard or the whiteboard or whatever it was that he had there, he wrote 100 million. That was his goal, from what I understand, when they were in the studio. And I don't know if that kind of putting that much pressure on yourself was a good idea. Because, listen, Bad is a hooky album. It's a good album, but it's nowhere near Thriller. And I would say it's it's especially nowhere near Off the Wall, which I think was a superior album. Hmm. I really like this next segment. This is all about Tim Schmidt joining the band and how they came to write his signature song. He was the only logical choice. He was the only logical choice. Yeah, I don't, we never, uh, we never thought that, there was anyone else. Only he guy re- that played low and sang high. You know, that's right. He replaced Randy once before in Poco, yeah. seven years ago, and he was re- really the only uh, logical choice. And 
it just so happened that at the time, you know, Poco was at a stall in their career, and uh, everyone was unhappy. It's turned out good for Poco, which is, I, you know, I hope we could point out uh, by Timothy coming and joining us and them getting a couple new members. Their their album Legend is a real good album. So. I think he was beginning to wonder there for a while, you know, when this album kind of was dragging on and on for a couple of years, you know, and they come out and the, their album goes gold and then platinum and stuff, and he's kind of going, geez, I don't, know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. My brother's friends don't believe I'm in the Eagles because there ain't a record out. <laughs> Golly, Beef. <laughs> we wrote that song, uh, Timothy and, and Don and myself. We were thinking about what kind of song could we write for the guy that we were getting from Poco. So when Timothy got in the band, we figured what was expected would be some a lilting acoustic three-part harmony kind of song, you know, a la what he had done in Poco and, you know, things that we could do like that. And we decided to go another way and write a falsetto kind of Smokey Robinson melody with him, you know, singing up in falsetto and do kind of an R&B tune on him. And uh, it was the first song that we recorded uh, for this album that we kept. It was the first Keeper track. Great clip and a great song for sure. Isn't that a great story? Yeah. I mean, especially stylistically how they were moving into more of like a kind of soul domain with, with that song. And it, it sounds it too. I love the way it sounds. And I also love the cover version that Vince Gill did on that Eagles tribute album, which was uh, partially responsible for getting them back together. There's also a bit of a revelation quietly there where they mentioned that this song was the first keeper, which tells you that they go through a lot of songs and a lot of writing and a lot of rewriting That's in right. order to come up with one good record. Yeah. But, but which I admire so this is famous lost words as we uncover some great music interviews from the past I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward right now we're knee deep in a couple of interviews with the Eagles we're firmly in 1979 now as they talk about the album the long run Christopher okay Tom so here we start off innocently enough with a song about teenagers called teenage jail before <laughs> swerving into something about the educational system we wanted to make a, a real teenage track you know of, of that song you know a real kind of uh, trio you know tri- power trio real heavy metal kind of song you know for uh, for the teenagers i have a brother who's 18 you know and two three years ago when we first started writing this song you know he was into you know some of the heavy metal guitar groups and stuff that was that was his thing uh, so we wanted to make a song about being a teenager being trapped in high school or trapped boredom in of high school you know you know because i don't think the educational system is caught up with what kids need to know today you know i think it's real it's like dead time between true life experience you know you're just trapped there that's why the, that's why we did it kind of like a downer you know, you got your elbow on the desk and your head on your fist. You're you looking know, at the clock. Uh, that's that's one you know, that's that one facet of, of American life that, that we've really allowed to slip into the toilet. I think. I mean, teachers should get paid as much as anybody doing anything. I mean, that's, that's the most important people we have. And they should be scrutinized. That and they way should be too. scrutinized. And it's uh, no wonder the kids are bored. You know. I hated it in high school. It was dead time for me. I needed to get out into the world. I know exactly how they feel if they have to sit through some stupid sociology course with some dull dish rag of a teacher, you know. Uh, Rock and roll is a monument 
to the, you know, to the shortcomings of our educational system. Ah, when gold is just not good enough. So the music business isn't enjoying one of its peak years. And I think probably what happened is a lot of uh, tenured record executives uh, signed up a whole bunch of people that didn't sell as many records as they thought. You know, I mean, they thought when, when the big numbers came in, the first... Uh, I think 76, 77, and 78 were banner years for the, for the record business. Uh, I guess they just thought it was just going to go on like that. Yeah, no matter the what. standards got inflated to such a ridiculous proportion, you know. I mean, we sold 10 or 11 million, and Fleetwood Mac sold 12 million, and, and Frampton, and Boston, and all those people. I guess they thought it would go on forever, you know. So now it's like people are ashamed of, of like of having a gold, a gold record. record. But it was not so long ago that doing five and I mean we the population hasn't grown that much in the last four or five years that doing a half a million records and getting a gold record was a very important thing and, and something that everyone strives for in the music business but the, like Don says the standards just got yeah, now we're going for kryptonite records right plutonium records okay I actually love that clip and I love how they call them tin-eared record executives again taking a <laughs> shot at them the, the tin-eared record executives trying to find the next rumors or the next Hotel California in all the bands that they're listening to great stuff yeah I love the plutonium records reference right <laughs> <laughs> oh Don the cynic yep. uh, a discussion about the song Those Shoes swings from a girl in a bar to of course the president but mostly the song's about women Felder really wrote a good track for that song. Uh, that, that song we used two talk boxes on. Walsh and Felder played talk boxes, and I'd never heard that done before. With singing over them. Usually talk boxes are used just for solos. We have to there. explain what a talk box is at this In, point, uh, I think. Yeah, the talk box is a guitar that sounds like somebody's talking the notes while it's playing. It's a tube. It's yeah. a tube that comes up into your mouth, and then you form the sounds with your mouth and put it back out through the microphone. Walsh used it on Rocky Mountain Way, and then Frampton, of course, picked it up and used it on Do You Feel Like I Feel, or whatever that was. But Walsh used it first in rock and roll, and it was given to him by a steel, a pedal steel guitar player from Nashville named Pete Drake. In culmination of the, the meaning of that song, I mean, whether you're a real pretty woman or whether you're in a successful rock group, whether you're the president of the United States, if you're in any kind of position, you're in those shoes. Another great clip. That's fantastic. And that whole thing about the origins of the use of the talk box, that was pretty cool too, huh? Yes, and I've heard Peter Frampton recently talk about uh, the origins of the talk box and uh, and how he and Joe Walsh were kind of sharing it for a while. That is so interesting, and it sounds great on Do You Feel Like We Do from Frampton Comes Alive and, of course, Rocky Mountain Way and other songs uh, from both Hotel California and The Long Run. It sounded great when he used it. Jumping ahead a couple of decades for a little icing on the interview cake, here's an excerpt from Tom's 2000 interview with a very somber Don Henley. Tom, how was it meeting the man? Well, I, you know, as we discussed, we didn't play this particular clip when we ran the Don Henley interview um, a few episodes ago, uh, simply because there was mm. just so much. But Henley was great. He was very thoughtful. He wasn't quite as... There wasn't quite as much pretense with him. I think he'd relaxed quite a bit, but he is a very serious guy, and he's very thoughtful in the sense that there's a, like a lot of 
depth running through that man's brain in terms of what he's trying to communicate. And he takes it very seriously. And there are times when he takes it too seriously. And it is funny what he says in this upcoming clip. He talks about how these are dangerous times. That's how it starts. And this is the year 2000, 20 years ago. And what he's saying about the internet is way more relevant now than it was even back when he said it. It's so good. So have a listen to this clip, Don Henley from 2000. These are dangerous times. There is so much garbage being programmed into people's minds, into people's lives, into people's homes via the media, television in particular, uh, now the internet, which, which can be a wonderful tool for communication and for learning. Uh, and to make the world a better place, but like any media in a free society, can be used for ill, for bad things. And uh, there's a lot of garbage along the information highway. You know, it's littered <laughs> with garbage. People are, ex- are experiencing a lot of frustration and unhappiness because all that stuff doesn't fill up the hole that's inside every one of us. It's spiritual junk food. Ooh, that, would, that was serious. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so so there you go. Don Henley from 2000, talking politics, the information superhighway, cable television, like everything. Such an interesting clip, and he did say that very well. There you have it. Don Henley, Glenn Fry, and a little bit of Joe Walsh of the Eagles on Famous Lost Words. From the mid-60s, where did our love go? The Supremes with Diana Ross on Famous Lost Words. Tom, if you love The Supremes, you have to hear this vintage Diana Ross interview. She digs into the history of the group, touching on their earliest days and the beginnings of their time with Motown Records. She also talks about her relationship with the Jackson 5. Now, as you know, I had a great experience writing a number of songs with Diana, two of which she released, and all the warnings that I got beforehand about how I was in for the ultimate diva experience proved false. That's great. Seriously, she was gracious, respectful of my contribution, and totally engaged in the creative process. And I had to put aside my awe at Miss Ross, which, by the way, I did not have to call her, and try to get her to talk about what was inspiring her, what was moving her, what was important in her life at the time of our get-togethers. Are you ready for this? In one of our meetings, she was standing by the window of the room we were working in. It was pouring rain outside. And she very dramatically announced that she didn't think her husband loved her anymore. Oh, no. Really? I silently, I gulped. I thought, I got two tracks going. I'm thinking, what do I say now? Yeah. And the other track is, this is really good song material. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But I was kind of speechless as this single lonely teardrop made its way down her cheek. Oh, my goodness. Oh. (laughs) You know... That is interesting because, you know, you were you were mining there. Like you were asking her what's going on in her life and, and she is going there. She's going deep and she tells you that. And that's a that's a very profound moment and uh, one that she was sharing with you. You know, that's that's really something. That's really great. Oh, okay, back to reality or as much of it as you're ever going to get on this show. Yeah. <laughs> Diana starts by talking about the earliest days of the Supremes and the changing membership starting with a fascinating statement. I was not the lead singer. We all took lead and we sang harmony. And uh, we were still in school and rehearsing in the evenings. And uh, 
trying to get a recording contract. Mm -hmm. At this point, Motown hadn't entered. Hadn't really gotten started. Motown was just beginning with people like um, Smokey and Marv Johnson, I think, you know. Somehow, it was towards our senior year in high school, Mr. Gordy heard us singing at an audition. He happened to walk through. He was a very young man, very handsome. We didn't know who he was. We liked him very much, you know. <laughs> but we liked hanging out at Motown because of all the young, good-looking guys driving big Cadillac cars. And um, Motown did not record us right away. Then Florence left the group. Florence's mother made her leave the group because she wasn't doing well in school or something like that. So Mary and I decided to go ahead as a, a, a duet. Mary and I were really very close friends, really the best of friends. I wore her clothes, she wore mine, and we, even though we went to different high schools, we uh, both liked the same things very much. Boy, oh boy. Oh yeah, calls him Mr. Gordy. I love the history of the band as told by someone who lived it. This is great. Just want to point out that some of these Diana Ross clips are a little bit hard to hear, but we think the content of them is so good that uh, we've done our best to fix them up to make them sound a little bit better, but we do apologize for the sound quality, but we also love the content of the clips. And that she wasn't the lead singer? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Here she reveals her growing sense of the business and which department she was head of. We had seven number one records in a row, and it went so that uh, every time we came back home, Uh, to Detroit. We were in the studio, we were unpacking, going back on another trip, and we were being booked, and we were making something like $600 a week, and things like that. It were incredible amounts of money that we thought at that time, and uh, we decided we were going to run the group like a a club. There was going to be a president, a secretary, and and someone that's going to take the notes, and so I was in charge of costumes, and Mary was in charge of music, and Florence was in charge of uh, taking care of the money or something like that. She was very good with figures and money, you know. And by the time Florence had gotten back with us, by the way, because uh, we persuaded her mother that we were going to take care of her and that she would really do well in school that year and uh, <laughs> a lot of things like that, which she didn't do. The biggest problem we had during that time was we were making a European tour, and uh, everybody was falling out with each other. We were having fights and arguments. Not actual hitting fights, but arguments. And that's when uh, Mr. Gordy was with us, and I said to him, it's really time for us to sit down and evaluate where we're going and what we're going to do and really start to communicate with what's happening with us and what we want to get out of this business. You know, it's not all fun and games and hobby anymore. It's a business, and it's, uh, you know, what we want to do. (laughs) Another really great behind-the-scenes look behind the inner workings of a group. That's great stuff. Tom, back in episode 13, in our very first year, uh, in a very short Michael Jackson clip, mm-hmm. he talks about the importance of Diana Ross to the Jackson Five. And even previous to that on our show, when in one of our earliest episodes, Janet had a completely different take on that origin story. Here, Diana tells the tale her way, but not taking the credit that many people were eager to give her. The truth is, I don't know which one of, uh, who really discovered uh, the Jackson Five. I think it was one of the miracles or something, but actually... To me, it doesn't really matter that they got with Motown. And what I did is at that time, being as popular and I was doing television shows and things like that, I got them on the Hollywood Palace with me that I was hosting. And because I really cared for them, you know. I mean, I really wanted them to make it. And it's like I can find a lot of people I care about today, but I really won't get involved in their careers. And I got very involved with and the career of the Jackson Five. 
And uh, actually, they were already discovered before they came to Motown. There was no discovery, really, you know, like a budding of a flower or what have you. They were already discovered. And um, because of the sadness that happens right now, it's because I really miss them. And I think they need Motown and they need me. But then who, you know, nobody needs nobody. <laughs> we don't really need anybody. And then I also feel that the Jackson 5 probably would have been successful anyway, without Motown, without me, without Ronnie. I think it was Ronnie of the Miracles or what happened. They first brought them by uh, Mr. Gordy's house. And I remember the little green outfits that they had on. But I was there, and I was the one that took the special one to Santa Berry's, you know, really, they should be discovered, you know. So, yes, they came to com the company, and I did what I could do for them, you know. And I did that by introducing them and spending them. I invited them out here. I invited their parents out here, you know, for them to live in California. And I had leased a house out here. This is when I just moved, leased a house out here and had no furniture in it whatsoever. And they lived with me for about a week. And during that week, all we did was do artwork and uh, play music. And uh, I spent, I took care of them for a week. I cooked for them and spent time with them for a week before their parents came out to California. And I really loved them as if they were my children. But uh, Michael and uh, Jermaine and Marlon were very much a part of me. Wow, she's just so gracious in that clip. I got to tell you, between your stories of Diana and these clips, I'm really going to reevaluate my assumption that she was 100% diva. She just sounds intelligent <laughs> and matter-of-fact and really, like, friendly. And even her description, when you know there was trouble within the Supremes, when she says they were actually buddies when they first started hanging out, you believe her, you know? you can, And you can yeah. really tell that she loved those Jackson kids. Okay, there you have it. From the Famous Lost Words archives, that's Diana Ross. This is Famous Lost Words. We're playing some of the greatest moments from our interview archives. Right now, we go back 41 years to 1979. Pink Floyd from the biggest selling album of the 1970s, Another Brick in the Wall from The Wall. Tom, the producer of that record, Bob Ezrin probably had an inkling of what he was getting into when he agreed to produce the classic The Wall in 1978. He'd already worked with Lou Reed, Alice Cooper, and Kiss, among others, yeah. so how hard could it be, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, stay tuned. Bob had been mentored by the late Jack Richardson, legendary producer of The Guess Who, Bob Seger, Poco, etc. Wait a minute, and he produced you. Yes, he did. <laughs> it's not at the top of the list. It's kind of alphabetical well. board. And I should mention the Juno Award for Producer of the Year is named after Jack, just so you know. Right, right. Um, Alice Cooper's manager, Shep Gordon, wanted Jack to produce Alice. But Jack said, mm, and handed it off to Ezrin. And the rest is history. Right. Cut to The Wall. Ezrin has described Roger Waters as both the best and worst person he's ever worked with. <laughs> quote, very hard, but very stimulating and thrilling, unquote. Well, he assumed more than a typical producer's role in the creation of the record. By the way, the origins of this work are the stuff of legend, a final show on the In the Flesh tour in Montreal, Waters spitting on some effusive fans, Gilmore quitting, Waters contacting Ezrin to talk about the concept for what would become The Wall. Right. And it just went on from there. Um, Bob says, we took the storyline that Roger had been working with, and I wrote a screenplay for The Wall oh. where every scene was a song. Right, right. 
Okay. Yeah. Interest, interesting stuff, huh? For sure. So the album was the end of the band for all intents and purposes, but what a way to go out. It topped the U.S. charts for 15 weeks and produced Pink Floyd's only U.S. number one, Another Brick in the Wall Part 2. It was also number one in the U.K., sold over 24 million records. The, the album is Double Diamond in Canada. <laughs> You know, what else can you say? This interview with Bob Ezrin is illuminating in many ways. He pulls back the curtain on the creation and execution of the album and the stress that went into making it. For sure. This is a wonderful interview conducted by a great broadcaster by the name of John Donaby. And it's been great reaching out and talking to John a little bit recently about this interview. He was very excited that we are going to play it. And I'm sure he is going to be glued to his podcast, uh, glued to his radio or his headphones. <laughs> Before he, uh, while, he, while he's listening to this. Here's to you, John. So here, Bob addresses the concept for The Wall. When Roger Waters began writing this concept, Bob, was it with the thought that eventually this whole concept would be performed on stage? Oh, or did that become an afterthought? No, no, absolutely. It was always tied into the, to the idea of performing behind a wall. He's always wanted to do what he's felt on stage for years anyway, which is this tremendous wall he feels, this... this uh, Mm-hmm. Um, sort of spiritual and and uh, emotional wall that exists between him and his audience. He feels phony as hell up there. He always has. Since the beginning. Since the beginning. And he wants to represent that in a way. Personally, I don't know if anyone gives a... You know, I don't, I don't know if anyone cares, you know, what, how he feels. They want to be entertained. But this is an entertaining thing in this itself. This could be one of the greatest acts of self-indulgence It could be, but, but at the same time, it's a very entertaining concept mm-hmm. because it's so, it'll be so uh, grand to watch. And, and uh, the motivation behind these things never matters. I mean, Julie, Julie, Judy Garland was a very self-indulgent oh. young lady, and that propelled her stage show, but people loved her anyway. Mm-hmm. They didn't know about the self-indulgence that went behind what she did. Bob, will the wall be their entire show? There is a running battle at this moment about that. And I happen to believe that we should do something towards the end of the set that represents old Pink Floyd. Roger's militantly opposed. But but I think that the way that this works out, even though it seems like it may want to run two hours in this form, it's not going to be long enough to be a complete show. So I think that probably by the time they're finished, we're right in the middle of it now. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's the rehearsals are going on in L.A. and the, the band is just learning the material in the proper form, proper order. He talks about how the concept connects with the listener, despite a theme of alienation between artist and fan. This album is very much constructed to tie in with the show. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's very much constructed to be able to mean just about anything you want it to, depending upon who you are. The wall is something that we all live with. We all have our walls of certain... You we know, build them. We build our own walls of our own shapes and sizes, and we've, we have judiciously stayed general enough from the top of the album to the end so that almost any individual can read himself into this if he's reading the lyric. It can become very autobiographical for an awful lot of people. Sure, sure. He's very candid about Roger Waters' need for a collaborator. Bob Ezrin, with the exception of perhaps Alan Parsons, as he has told us in another interview, where he gave a lot of creative ideas to the Money album by Floyd, The Register, and so on, although he is accredited as being engineer. In fact, Floyd have never used a quote-unquote producer until now. A, why a producer? And B, quite frankly, why Bob Ezrin? Well, we'll just leave that alone. We'll leave the Alan Parsons contribution to the... the, uh, Which album was it? Wish You Were Here, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
Dark Side of dark the Moon. Side, yeah. Dark Side, dark of the side. Moon. Well, in fact, Parsons was an engineer, and, and uh, I don't know about the creative input. The way the group tells it, he didn't have a great deal to do with it. But um, I never get in the middle of these okay. things, you know. The reason why I produced her this time is because this is a double album, because the stage show was tied in, because it's a monumental undertaking for any one individual, because Roger, for the first time, was writing almost all the material and was frankly a little insecure about whether he was able to handle all that he'd bitten off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and because he's got two kids of his own and because he doesn't want to be up till four o'clock every morning and because he doesn't want to be out on a limb and completely responsible for the, the uh, other members in the group and for a whole variety of reasons, he decided this time out he wasn't going to do it without a collaborator. The writing alone of this thing took months to do because uh, Roger is not the world's most versatile musician mm-hmm. and uh, and as a composer he is primarily lyric oriented and he uh, suits he adapts the music to suit the lyric and things were coming out very much the same in fact there was basically one melody going on for 90 minutes and it was just not going to do so uh, we we had to rewrite everything and uh, although this may sound like an Alan Parsons story too, but although, <laughs> although the credits read that uh, Gilmore and I really only were involved with three songs, in fact, those are three that we actually brought in without them being adaptations of a, of an idea of Rogers or or but they reworks. But the, these were things that we brought in clean and clear. Mm-hmm. Roger made it quite clear from the beginning it was his project. Anybody could write on it that wanted to, but they weren't going to get any money for it, and they weren't going to get credits. You know, <laughs> that was that was it. This is you know quite a man, Roger. Oh, yes, he is. He really is. He's yeah. one of the most imposing people I've ever worked with. Would you agree, perhaps, that this album, The Wall, could do for Bob Ezrin what perhaps Sergeant Pepper did for George Martin, which really made him, I think, a pinnacle of the 60s. You may agree with this, I hope, that it brought the art of production and producing to the element we now see, you know, 15 years later. Oh, I don't think so. You don't think no, so? No, I don't think so. I brought that up, Bob, because <laughs> Sergeant Pepper was, was, was made, on, uh, as you know, on the four-track. Yes. And I, every time I would listen to Sergeant Pepper at that time, I would hear things. And not since then have I heard something such as The Wall. Uh-huh. Well, that's great. It's meant that's, to be a compliment, but I, that's, I'm... No, I'm, I'm really happy because it, it was, it was uh, crafted to do that to people. It really was intended right from day one that it be layer after layer after layer of information that you should be able to swim through it, you know, and, and that, that uh, most important of all, because it's so damn long and because there's so many songs that it not become boring. Is this the toughest project you've taken on? Oh, yeah, sure. It's, absolutely, just by definition, because there's so much in it. And uh, 27 songs. Sure, and, and uh, 27 songs performed by a group of four people who hadn't even sat in the same room together for two and a half years, never mind played together. In it's fact, been a long time, hasn't it? It's been that a long very time. long time, and, and none of them, in fact, not one of these tunes was cut with a whole band in the room. Not one, not one song. In fact, most of them were cut one instrument at a time. Are they having? Were they having problems? No, it's just that they they haven't played for a long time. They haven't played together, and they're all at different stages of development musically. Gilmore obviously has been working. He made an album. Gilmore Gilmore was just coming off making a, a solo, solo album and playing with a band, so he was hot, ready to go. He would get a lick, and you know he'd hear it once and be ready to play it. But but uh, Nick Mason, the drummer, hadn't played drums for a year, hadn't mm-hmm. picked up his sticks, so he was a little rusty, and he'd need a few days to get into something and so on. And, 
Everyone was at their own stage of development. Roger, being so concerned with lyrics, was not playing very good bass at the moment while we were taking tracks. He kept rewriting as we were doing it and so on. So he kept saying, well, we'll do the basses later, you know. Oh, wow. That's quite a statement. That's when producers mm-hmm. attack rock stars. It must have been very weird <laughs> to be in a band with Roger Waters, one of the most imposing people he's ever worked with, Bob Ezrin has ever worked with. Finally, Bob Ezrin talks about the experience of a Pink Floyd show. Are Pink Floyd apprehensive at all about this tour? In that, you know, Led Zepp laid off for a few years, came back, critics tore him apart. Mm. Forget about the critics for a moment, but I'm just wondering if Pink Floyd are apprehensive at no, all. No, no, not at all. No. They, they have nothing to be apprehensive about, but they, they live in a, a genre of their own, you know? People who go to see a Pink Floyd concert go for an experience. They know that they're doing that. They're not going to hear virtuoso music, musicianship, and they're not looking for Stanley Clark bass solos and stuff. They're looking to sit in the room, be visually and musically and conceptually bombarded in a way and into, you know, it's almost like, a, to use an old-fashioned word, it's like a happening. It's not as much a concert as it is. A, it's a, an occasion, you know? Mm-hmm. And you go, it's a social thing as well. A Pink Floyd show is a social gathering, too. And I think that... They, they have a relationship with their audience that's quite unique, and they don't worry about those things. Bob, by the way, maintained his connections to the Richardson family, co-founding the Nimbus School of Recording Arts in 2009 in Vancouver with Jack's son, Garth, who, by the way, is a producer and engineer who's worked with Nickelback, the Chili Peppers, and Motley Crue, among others. Well, that was a ton of fun. From the Eagles to Diana Ross to Pink Floyd, a nice cross-section of great artists on this week's edition of Famous Lost Words. As always, our show was produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. Thanks to John Donaby, the guy who did the amazing interview with Bob Ezrin. And man, would I like to talk to Bob and John one of these days on the show. If you liked what you heard, you can get caught up on past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. 